uh, like I, I wrote a book 10 years ago or nine years ago, and I'm getting paid all over again with a whole new country's worth of readers. Welcome to the Reigning Freedom Money Podcast. You are in the right place if you want to hear how to live a better life by taking steps now to achieve your financial freedom. To find out more, go to reigningfreedommoney.com. Here are your hosts, David and Patty Royster. Hey there, everybody. Um, happy, what is today? It's Thursday. <laughs> Thursday. Thursday. Yes, we have Lee Vastola Cowden here with us today. We got to know Lee through a mastermind. And Lee has a really interesting story. She's done so many different things. And so we're like, we got to get Lee on our podcast and hear, share more about her life with other people. So how are you doing, Lee? <laughs> I'm doing great. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. So you lived in France with your family. Can you tell us how you decided to live in France and how you, what it was like and how long and all that? <laughs> Sure. I'll try to keep it short and sweet because it could become a really long story if we're not careful. <laughs> um, <laughs> so this was in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, I would say when the housing market crashed. Um, at the time, my husband was working for a large horticultural conglomerate and I have my own law practice and everything, the economy went down, he got laid off and just the economy was so bad and it was kind of a depressing place to be. We were in South Florida and a lot of people were losing their homes and declaring bankruptcy. And we just said, you know what? I think it's time to take a step back from all of this. Let's take the kids somewhere for a one-year adventure, simplify our lives. Because if you've, I don't know if you've been to South Florida, but it can be a very materialistic place where you find yourself caught up in this keeping up with the Joneses lifestyle you have to have a fancy car and a bigger house than you can probably afford and that kind of thing. So we realized that wasn't what, what we wanted. And so we sold everything that we owned, our house, our cars, most of our possessions. And we said, let's, let's go some, to some other country for a year, or actually it was going to be for just one year. That was the plan. And we were thinking maybe South America because we wanted our children to learn Spanish because boy, especially in Florida, if you can be bilingual in English and Spanish, you're all set. But we both really liked France a lot. We had gone there on a vacation together. We both studied it in high school eons ago. And so we said, all right, it's just for one year. We probably won't even be fluent in a year. So let's just go to the place we really love. So we decided to go to France. And I had a year before realized that I could get Italian citizenship uh, through my great grandparents having immigrated mm. to the US and not had not become citizens. So we had Italian passports, which made it very easy for us to go to any European Union country without a visa. So we went to France. We were going to go to Paris, which is where I found a job teaching at a university, but it was very expensive to live in France and very difficult to find housing. So we ended up down in South France, Southern France near Montpellier, if you know where that is, it's on the Mediterranean coast down there. And I commuted every week up to Paris where I had a job there teaching legal English to law students. And 
after a few months of being there and really loving the lifestyle and enjoying learning the language and so on, we took a family vote and we all voted to stay. And we didn't put a time limit on it. We just said, we'll stay until we're not having fun anymore. And we ended up staying for eight and a half years. And so our kids essentially grew up there. When we went, my youngest was six. And then the next kid was 12 and then the oldest was 14. And uh, by the time we left, my youngest had lived in France longer than she lived in the U.S. So, um, oh, what an incredible adventure you guys had! Yeah, we did. Your we kids uh, are they? They're all in the states now, or are they yeah. in France? No, okay. We're all here now, and uh -huh. they're all fluent in French. Yes. Well, sure I would say my youngest is the most fluent because she started at the youngest age, and when you're young, you're not you don't realize you're learning the mechanics of the language. You just kind of learn it in a very organic way. But the older you are, the more you pay attention to the mechanics and that kind of slows you down. So my husband is the least fluent and my youngest is the most fluent. And then the rest of us are somewhere in the middle. That's awesome. <laughs> that mm -hmm. is awesome. And then when you were there, um, you flipped houses? Yes, we flipped a couple houses. It wasn't a flipping business. It was, we bought a house, fixed it up and then said, okay, let's move somewhere else. So one of them was a, in the middle of a small village that was just outside an old uh, quarry where they have a huge jazz festival every year. It's a world, world renowned jazz festival. The name of the town is Junas, spelled J-U-N-A-S. And in the middle of this little village, there was this old barn and all the other parts of that area of the village had been turned into residences. So this was the last piece that was still a barn. And it was just four walls and a roof. And the farmer who owned it, whose family owned it for generations had been using it as a, a dumping ground for old junk. <laughs> <laughs> so we uh, excavated it, put in what, the French call a cave, which is essentially a basement for your wine, and um, built a two-story, three-bedroom residence inside this. That's uh, incredible. Yeah. yeah, the walls are like three feet thick, and these are, in the south of France, the tiles are those barrel, those half-barrel orange tiles, clay tiles, roof. Um, and yeah, I mean, that was our first one. And then we, we decided we wanted to move to a place where our horses had a better environment because we had started becoming horse crazy at that point. So we moved into the Dordogne, which is in the Southwest or Northwest part of France, kind of North of Bordeaux and South of Paris. And the house itself was amazing. It was great. And again, hundreds and hundreds of years old, but it had this really old, structure that people couldn't remember if it had been used to dry clay tiles for roofs or to dry tobacco because of those are two products that were big for centuries in that area but it was we wanted to make it into a barn but the the beams that went across and supported the roof were only a four feet off the ground so even humans couldn't fit in that barn so we had to go through a lot of regulatory processes because France is very careful about allowing things to change. They like things to stay the same, but we eventually figured out a way to maneuver through the rules of France and we turned it into a uh, huge barn. 
the beautiful barn. And we used a lot of the old materials that were present in the original structure. So that was a huge year long undertaking on that project. And then we sold it to a, a horse, a horsey couple, I guess you could say, professional equestrians. <laughs> but mostly what did I did there. Know? Oh, go ahead. Uh, no, go ahead. <laughs> mostly what I did there was I taught for three years. And then the rest of the time there, I was writing fiction. I was writing novels. So that's really how we supported ourselves through the majority of our stay in France. Yeah, I was going to ask more about this, uh, your, your literature, your writing your books. Was that a pretty neat experience for you? Oh, for sure. I, I had, it's funny, my mom just, my mom just moved to Tennessee. And so she's been in the same place for a long time. And she brought boxes of stuff and said, I'm going to throw this out unless you want it. And one of the things she brought was this huge package of letters I had written to her over the years. And so I'd always been a big writer of letters and a lot of them were very humorous, you know, just recounting things that happened to me or that I'd seen. So people have told me all my life I should write a book because I write funny letters. So in the back of my mind, I guess I was always thinking, well, maybe one day I will write a book. So I read an article one day in the Wall Street Journal about this attorney who had written a novel but couldn't find an agent for it. So she put it in a drawer and forgot about it. But then she started reading books on her Kindle and she found out that Amazon has a platform called KDP, uh, Kindle Direct Publishing, where you can upload your own book without an agent and let the readers decide if it's any good or not. So I, she did that and she made a whole lot of money in her first year, more money than she was making as a lawyer. And I thought, huh, is this a thing? Is this a real thing? So I started researching and there were lots of other similar stories. So I said, okay, I'm gonna try it. What do I got to lose, right? So I'm just gonna take a little bit of time. I already had the story in my head for years. So I wrote this novel. It took me, I think two months to write it because I was so energized about the idea. And I published it January 1st of 2012 and my goal at the time was to have one unrelated person buy it, read it, and like it. Because I knew my mom was going to buy a ton of copies, and she was probably going to try to get all her sisters and brother to buy copies. <laughs> I wanted a stranger to like it. So in the first month, I sold 75 copies, and I think probably 50 of them were to my mom. But I did get some strangers to buy it and read it and leave really nice comments. So... It was like an addiction after that. I, I wrote a novel, a full novel every single month for years. Um, lots of series in many genres because I read in many genres. And I don't know, it was, it was a bit like being an addict. I did neglect my family a little bit. Um, my husband took over a lot of the things that I had been doing and I was still teaching for the first year or so. I would write on the train. I would write after classes. I would write over the weekend at night. Um, my husband says he, he likes going to, to sleep to the sound of my fingers on the keyboard. Because <laughs> for so many years that put him to sleep. <laughs> so did you decide to quit uh, being a professor uh, when you had enough income or did you just decide to go or how to work that way? Well, within the, first three months of writing, I was making more money as a writer than I was as a teacher. And 
the more time I was able to dedicate to the writing, the more money I was making. So it was an easy decision, but I had committed to teaching for a full year. So I kept doing it for that third year just because I had promised to do it, not because I wanted to or because I had to. So I would have probably quit teaching sooner had I not done that, but. Wow, that's awesome. awesome. Well, yeah. and that's, a, you know, one of the things about our podcast is passive income, you know, helping people make it rain in their lives through passive income. So even now you're still benefiting, right? Yes. From those books. For sure. And that's really what got me into multifamily investing in that. So it's been since 2012 that I've been supporting myself and my family with my royalties. And every day, another crop of readers is born. So my audience continues to grow every single day. And so a new crop of readers buys my books every month. And the more people who buy them, the more reviews I have and you know, the more attractive they look to buyers. So it just gets better. But also um, my books are translated into nine different languages now, not all of the books, but the, the best sellers are. And so now I'm getting a new wave of readers out of Germany and Italy and Spain and France and Croatia and Turkey and all over the place. So that's been really nice to see a new surge uh, like I, I wrote a book 10 years ago or nine years ago, and I'm getting paid all over again with a whole new country's worth of readers. You just uh, made the bestseller list recently. You were mentioning before, was that a book you recently wrote or one that you wrote yeah, a long time ago? that got? It's a book I wrote years ago that was just translated into German. And so that particular series, I had a I have one series of books that's four books long and then another one that's two books long that have been translated into German. And each time one hits the for sale rack, it goes to the bestseller list and stays there for a long time. So um, yeah, my books have been bestsellers in Germany for, I don't know, a year or two now, going on two years. Wow. And how does that feel to have that stream of money coming in every month? <laughs> it's awesome, which is why when I, you know, I looked around and I was, I moved back to the U.S., and I am an attorney, so I have my law license Florida in Florida, but I didn't have my law license at the time in Tennessee. I said, well, you know, I have my income really coming from one place, which is scary for me. I mean, I was a stockbroker many years ago and I always taught my clients to diversify their portfolios and my portfolio is not diversified at all. So I said, I need to find another evergreen source of income. And I don't mind working really hard for a few years to get the source going, so long as my hard work pays off for a long period of time after. It's essentially what I did with my writing. I worked really, really hard for several years, and now I don't have to work if I don't want to. So I did a lot of research, and you know, I was talking to my husband, who's been in uh, commercial horticulture for his whole life. So he's worked with some really big property owners of shopping complexes and malls and apartment buildings. And he said, the wealthiest people I've ever known in my life are commercial real estate investors. It's like, and if you look at even uh, Donald Trump and his family, it's all commercial real estate, right? These are the super wealthy. That's how most of them make the money. So I said, yeah. all right, well, if they can do it, I can certainly do it. So let's figure this out. I mean, we've always invested in residential real estate. So commercial is different for us. 
And uh, so we just started looking into it and I said, okay, I'm going to get to know some big time commercial real estate investors. How do I do that? And I said, well, if I become a broker and an attorney in Tennessee specializing in real estate, I'm going to get to know these people and I'm going to be able to see how they operate. So I got my broker's license and I passed the bar exam here in Tennessee and I started working for a big commercial brokerage. And um, luckily the principals were very open to the idea of me coming in and learning about their business in this way. And I actually have recently brought in a client who's done a really good job of uh, investing through our company. So I'm earning my keep there. That's awesome. Um, and I'm, I'm learning from their perspective what they're looking for in different types of commercial real estate. But I learned from myself personally that multifamily and to some degree self-storage facilities are really the two areas of commercial real estate that I think will deliver on what I'm looking for, which is that evergreen income stream that is protected even in downturn markets. And even in this case, pandemics, which is not something any of us saw coming, I don't think, um, except some of the preppers who used to seem super kooky to me, but now seem not so kooky anymore. <laughs> um, so that's really, my writing is what led me into multifamily investing because my parents, have a job like most people's parents where they have to go to work to make money. And if they don't go to work, they don't make money. That's the only model I ever saw. But once I started getting my money from royalties, even when I took months off where I did nothing but goof around for months, but I was still getting nice paychecks, I said, okay, I need to find a way to duplicate this and diversify my, my portfolio at the same time. So that's, that's how I got to multifamily actually. I remember the first time that we met at uh, in a multifamily or I mean a mastermind group, and um, you you did at that time you didn't have any properties that you did multifamily, but and you were very humble, but you're you had it on you were on top of everything. It's it, it just like you you knew where you were going to go and you were going to get there, and you had a very well laid out plan. Others says here's my problems and all that, but no, you you worked through and had a very concise plan on how you're going to get there. So um, I've been always impressed with you since then too. And you have done so much. Yeah, I think, well, uh, oh, go ahead. Oh, to me, um, success is a matter of following a process because you can look around you and see very successful people. And at the same time say, I'm just as smart as that person is, or I'm smarter than that person is. And I'm just as hardworking or harder working than that person is. So if they can do it, I can do it. But they didn't just fall into it. They followed some sort of process to get there. So I started looking at all the successful people in multifamily and I said, How, what is their process? And I looked at their foundation. They've, you know, we've talked about this in our mastermind where they create a thought leadership platform where they have an educational arm where they're teaching people their business. They're doing a podcast like you all are. They're writing informative articles. They're just showing how smart they are at what they do. And so when an investor is looking for somebody to work with, there's no mystery there. And you wanna remove as much mystery as possible for your investors so that they can know, like, and trust you because that's who you do business with, people you know, like, and trust. So for me to be comfortable working with other people's money, I have to feel like I know as much or more than anybody else in the room, which is not, maybe not realistic, 
but to me, educating myself is my number one priority. And then letting people know what I know and what I can do to help them is next. So my process was develop my foundation, develop the brand of my company, learn everything I possibly can about the process, about the underwriting, about the risks associated with this type of investing, how the finances work, et cetera, et cetera. And then of course, finding a mentor who's successful at this, who will be there to hold my hand while I do it, who will let me be a part of his or her team. And I found that in Corey Peterson oh, along sure. with you guys. So <laughs> that is awesome. That is awesome. So what are you doing right now in multifamily? Where are you at in your process? <clears throat> well, I was going to do a deal in started in January, went through a few months of due diligence and underwriting. I participated in the underwriting and the due diligence, but then the virus hit. I'd actually backed out of the deal before the virus hit because the numbers, I was not comfortable with the numbers, mainly because I'm a conservative person to begin with when it comes to working with other people's money. I, I take more risks with my own money than I do with other people's money. So I'm fairly conservative underwriter. And for me, especially with my first deals, I really need to make sure that they are, I would say a home run versus a base hit because there's not a lot of wiggle room with the base hit. I needed something with a lot of wiggle room that even if you know eight out of the 10 scenarios didn't work out, it was still gonna be okay for my investors. And this particular deal was a base hit deal. So I had backed out of it, but then the pandemic hit and I was still a part of the team who was evaluating it because I was just learning and I was working with Corey's group as just one of his teammates. And he ended up backing out of the deal in the end because when the pandemic hit, that really threw the numbers off. They were already close, but then it really threw the numbers off. So you know, there's something to be said for the learning process you get with not going forward with a deal. Yes. Well, I felt really good about it because I was the only one who backed out of that deal. And there were several people in our mastermind group who were a part of it and did not back out of the deal. But what I found interesting was when we would go to the property and I was asking, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? They had no idea because they did not know the numbers. They just were wanting to do a deal bad enough that they just assumed somebody else would take care of the numbers. Yeah. So like, I, I learned a lot of stuff on that deal. Like so many things, whether it had gone through or not, it was an amazing educational experience. So I'm really glad I took part in it. But when it all came out in the end and things had to be renegotiated and they were actually renegotiated to the level that I had said, for me to be comfortable with this deal, the numbers have to be here. Eventually that contract was renegotiated so that the numbers got there. So I felt really good that I had seen the numbers correctly. That I, that I knew what was going on financially with that property with just looking at the data and going to the property and walking through it. That, so it gave me a huge confidence boost. Like I know when I put my hard-earned money in and my trusted investors money into a project, I'm gonna know my stuff better than anybody else on my team. So it was great. It's a you bummer for the seller. <laughs> Another thing I picked up uh, from your approach on things or in life in general is that 
it, it takes a lot of energy to get things started. But then you have the reward come afterwards for a longer time. Is that not a true statement? And how does that apply to you? Absolutely. I mean, I know you guys are seeing it. I mean, you were sitting next to me in our first mastermind meeting, like just closing on your deal in Oklahoma. And I could tell like how much work and time you guys had put into it. And then after our meeting and your deal was closed, all the time and effort you guys put into it after, like, I think a lot of people think once the deal is done, it's easy street from there, but that's like where the real work starts. But this business, real estate in general, is not a get-rich-quick scheme. This is not for the faint at heart. It's not for people who are going to just put in a bunch of effort for a few weeks and think they're going to get all the reward after. This is a marathon, not a sprint. So it's different for me. It's more like my law career than my writing career. Because my writing career, I had success very early on, which motivated me to keep going. Now I did have to keep going and work really hard, but the money was there almost instantaneously. But with a law practice, I mean, you have to do your undergrad degree, then you got to do your law degree, then you've got to figure out how the law works because they don't really teach you that in law school. (laughs) (laughs) So it's, you have to spend a lot of money before you ever make any money as a lawyer. And I would say real estate commercial investing is very similar to that. Flipping is like three months. You get in, you fix, you get out. So that felt more like my writing career. But what we're doing multifamily is definitely, you got to have energy even when the chips are down and you underwrite deal after deal after deal and they just don't work out or your LOI doesn't get accepted or you get beat out on best and final. Like you just have to keep going. You have to, be able to self-motivate to some degree. And how do you do that? How do you self-motivate yourself? What keeps you going? (laughs) Well, one thing is, you know, I made friendships through our mastermind. So like I can send you guys a text and have a chat with you. And that gets me motivated. I can talk to somebody on the phone and it helps know that other people are going through the same thing where there's days where you feel like you're on top of the mountain and you're the champion and days where you're at the bottom of the mountain and you can't even see the top. And you're thinking, I don't know if I can make it there. And then you talk to somebody else who you admire and you know they're successful business people and they're terribly courageous and smart and they're feeling the same way some days. And you're like, okay, this is part of the process. So the difference between the game is the people who listen to that dark voice in their head saying, you're not going to make it and then give up. So, you know, I've had enough of the dark voice in my head trying to get me to give up. And I just, I've learned to say, nope, you're wrong. I just need to keep going. You know, I I feel with masterminds, it's like, um, you always feel like you're not doing good enough. No matter whoever you are. I I think every single one of the group feels that same way. Like I'm not reaching, I'm not doing enough. And so they do more. And then someone else sees that they did more and they feel like I'm not doing enough. So I'm not sure like we're all climbing to the top or we're all trying to help each other from the bottom, but we all, I, I don't know. That to me seems like a, one of the values of having a mastermind is that you're always being, feel the pressure to do better. You do. And I found in our particular group, there's the positives and the negatives and they both have the same result. So the majority of the people in the group are like 
super supportive. You're doing great. You're going to be a success at this. I admire what you're doing. I know you guys hear the same thing, like you're working hard and you're making it happen. And then you'll have somebody who will say something super negative and you're like, I'm going to prove that person wrong. That person does not know what they're talking about. So whether someone's being supportive of me or somebody is saying something not so supportive, it ends up having the same result for me. So the mastermind has been key for me and having, I know there are other groups out there and I looked at a lot of them before I decided on Corey's, not that this is a commercial for Corey Peterson, but what I liked about his group and still like about it is that it's small and you have access to Corey and Corey sometimes will just send me a text like he did right as this podcast was starting. He sent me a text. How's the hunting going? And so he's thinking about me, which makes me want to work harder. I want to make Corey proud. It's almost like he's like the parent, you yeah. know, and we're all his kids. So it, it definitely helps to know there's people rooting for you, people looking out for you and people expecting you to succeed. Yeah. And I think in any industry that, you know, anybody watching out here, there's masterminds in anything. It doesn't have to just be real estate. It could be writing. It could be dentistry. It could be anything, you know, but if you just hook up and feel that energy of other people in the room, it just propels everybody forward. Absolutely. You know, which is really cool. So Ready for the thunderstorm so we can make it rain? Awesome. Awesome. So what's your current favorite real estate book or business book that you'd like um, to share? That is a good question. The the book that I read most recently, there were two of them. And one of them was recommended to me by Sean Winslow, who was in our mastermind group. Greenbrier, Greenbrier Capital is the name of his company. And it was um, Mindset, The Power of Mindset, I think. And it's by, um, geez, I, I should have written it down before I got on here. I'm so sorry. Oh, no, I'll, that's okay. <laughs> I'll send you a message so you can put it in your show notes. Uh, care. It's a Dr. Carol Dweck or Dweck or something. Yeah, D W E C K. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And actually, reading the book was good because I realized where my drive and success comes from. Because I actually have the mindset that she says you need to have in order to be successful and to burst through obstacles and believe that you can achieve what you what you conceive. So. For me, that was a boost, like, okay, I'm doing this right. I just got to keep going. And then another one that I read recently was The Miracle Morning. Oh, that's a good book. Oh, that's my yeah. probably top five. Yeah. And not, okay, I'm not really great at getting up super early in the morning and following those <laughs> lists of things. I did do it a few times and it did actually make a huge difference. But I, I have this hesitation of being 100% from six in the morning until 10 o'clock at night. If I push myself that hard, I start to burn out. So I use my morning to just, I do my own version of Miracle Morning where I will lay there and I will think about my day and I'll think about the things I wanna fix from the day before. And I'll kind of just have this breathe in, breathe out, sl uh, slow meditation, doesn't last for a long time. And then I start my day in this very relaxed way where I think Miracle Morning is more like start your day, boom, let's go with all this stuff. 
So I do my own version of it, but I definitely see the value in starting your morning with setting up your day to be successful. So that was yes. my Yes, we had talked about doing a challenge with us and I didn't follow through on getting it started, but some version, mine's more like the miracle, like nine o'clock. <laughs> you know, these people talk about getting up at three or 4 a.m. and man, yeah. hats off to them, but I can't do that. <laughs> well, you know, I, yeah. I do get up at four in the morning, not on purpose, and I don't actually get out of bed, but I wake up and I, I say to myself, now would be a great time to do that miracle morning, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but I try to force myself to go back to sleep. <laughs> so what do you like to do for fun for fun um we have a pontoon boat um it's called a party hut (laughs) so it has like an upper deck and a a toilet and a little kitchen which is like heaven for me and the lakes in tennessee are so perfect in the summer they're the perfect temperature and there's no wildlife in there that will ever mess with you and it's they're surrounded by the smoky mountains so it's so beautiful. Oh. So one of my favorite things to do is flinking, which is a word my family and I made up. It's floating and drinking. So we just <laughs> jump off the pontoon that's anchored out in the lake and we float around and drink beer, or wine and hang out with our friends and have our redneck yacht club going. <laughs> so I would say that's one thing I like doing. <laughs> that sounds a like a thing. lot of fun. Can we come visit? Yes, you can. <laughs> We will indoctrinate you into the East Tennessee way of, of relaxing. Do we have a gun too? Is that part of the, the Actually, thing? Actually, they will take guns and go shoot, not animals, but like at targets, they'll targets. go to the store, set up targets, and then go drive out into the lake and shoot the targets. So <laughs> I have not done that, but it is done around here. There you go. So what are one or two things that have made the difference in your success? Because obviously you've been very successful. Uh, I would say uh, my stubbornness. Uh, because when somebody tells me I can't do something, then that's just more motivation for me to prove them wrong. I guess I, I know what I'm capable of. So when I see something, I just go for it. And I don't generally let anything stand in my way. If there's a ton of obstacles, I do listen to the universe telling me this is not the path for you. So I'm not a bull in a china shop. But... I would say my stubbornness and my belief that I can do it. That, those would be the things. And my you husband on is, your mindset. Mindset. And my husband yeah. is the best partner in the world for me because he's super calm, super relaxed. And he is totally cool with me having crazy ideas. And just, he says, go for it. He's just happy to tag along and support and do what I do because he always wanted to have grand adventures in his life, but he was raised in a very conservative family and had a very conservative life. And we met later in life. And so he gets to have those adventures, but he doesn't really have to put together any of the plans. <laughs> so he hitched on to you and now he's hanging on for dear life as you're yeah. doing all these crazy things. That's kind of how we go too. It's like, yeah. I got this crazy, like, check this out. And he'll I was, be like, oh boy, yeah, there it goes again. <laughs> yeah, but It's fun though. Yeah. <laughs> so what advice do you have to our listeners with respect to how to achieve financial freedom? Well, I would say invest with David and Patty because they've already done it. They know what they're doing. They're incredibly smart. And I mean, you ask David and Patty anything about their numbers, especially David, he's going to know the answer. And you want to invest with somebody 
who knows their numbers at their property, right? Like it's surprising how many people do not know their numbers. So that's critical. I would say learn about the multifamily business and invest with somebody who you trust. Well, thank you. That's awesome. That is awesome. So where can people find out more about you? Uh, my website has all the connections on it. It's Sparks Blackthorn Capital. So S-P-A-R-K-S-B-L-A-C-K-T-H-O-R-N Capital. And the name of that, Sparks Blackthorn is the last name of one of the characters and one of my books. So everybody asks me. Oh, where so someone, oh, I didn't know that. someone reads their books, they could figure out who you really are, I guess. Yeah, right? they probably, <laughs> they're a very good detective. If they're a good detective, they deserve it. If they're, they're not very smart, then you're safe anyway, right? That's so. right. That's right. <laughs> well, well, that so. is awesome, Lee. Thank you so much for your time. It was surely a pleasure. And we're yeah, going to come out to Tennessee and go flinking. Absolutely. <laughs> thanks, thanks for having me on the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks for being our guest. Without rain, nothing grows. Weather the storm. You can't sail if you never leave the harbor. Challenges are just big waves to help you get to your destination. Remind yourself the rainbow will come. And most importantly, don't forget, life isn't about waiting for storms to pass. It's about learning to dance in the rain. If you're ready to learn more about creating legacy wealth through multifamily investing, go now to reigningfreedommoney.com. Ready for the thunderstorm so we can make it rain.